Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Hey guys, I cannot begin to tell you how excited I was today. I knew I was going to have this amazing conversation with a man who is the inspiration for putting me on my path to optimizing my brain functioning. He has more than 30 years of experience with human brain research. He's one of the world's top neuroscientists, and he's the originator of the field of integrative neuroscience. Dr. Evian Gordon is the creator of BrainNet, the world's largest database of international standardized brain science, which is also the backbone of Total Brain, the mental health platform that is used by Fortune 100 companies, health insurers, and the AARP. Evian has authored hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific papers and books, The Brain Revolution, Know and Train New Brain Habits, as well as Integrative Neuroscience and Personalized Medicine. So basically what all this means is that Evian is one of the smartest human beings on this planet who's also in the forefront of helping the rest of us understand and optimize the human brain. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Evian, thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you, Ariana. You've been an inspiration for me and your vegan lifestyle, so we're, um, I'm in your, forever in your debt for that. Evian, I cannot even begin to tell you how glad and happy that makes me, and this is one of the big commonalities we also share now is our passion for vegan lifestyle, so we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And I'm very curious to see how it actually has affected you on your path, not only as a human being, but also a neuroscientist. Vegan lifestyle, big change for you, big change for me in our lives. And which actually brings me to one of the first things I want to talk to you about is, you know, there's a saying, there's only one constant in life, and that is change. So why is it so difficult for us to make changes in our habits? And how does that relate to how our brain functions? So you put your fingers, I knew you would, right on the pulse. Um, the central question is why would change that's even beneficial for you be so hard to achieve? And there are many reasons, but I am an integrationist, so I'll try my best to give the essence of what we see from the Brains International Database, but also from the literature and from the many key opinion leaders I have the privilege of having dealt with over the past two decades. The bottom line is change is a threat. How can change be a threat if it's good for you? It's a threat because our brains fear failure more than anything, because there's a simple reason for that. Above all, the brain has evolved to stay safe. So safety first is the organizing principle of the brain. 
So if the brain is so preoccupied by, by safety above everything else, until we've resolved that, we are very reluctant to move off that comfortable repetition. And we've been conditioned. It's very neurons that fire together, wire together. So we've had a lifetime of conditioning, genetic predispositions, and habit generation that are hugely wired in our brains. They're our default mode. So the bottom line that I've seen and my peers around the world have seen is this. To change, you need to have a pathway that's clear, a strategy, and you need to see a benefit quickly. Because the brain will go there if it secretes dopamine, you get a reward in your nucleus accumbens, your reward center of the brain. You don't have to persuade anybody about anything if they see and feel and experience a benefit quickly. So that's the issue. How do we marshal this brain revolutionary insights that are emerging everywhere? But how do we marshal them to counter this change the threat. And the other only point I want to make about this around is that it's non-conscious. It's not a logical threat. People logically, so the whole brain, and I'm sure we'll come to this a bit more, is really continually aligning our non-conscious drivers. Our non-conscious brain drive the show in the main. There's a lot of, but this issue of non-conscious intuition, biases, driving dynamics, and rational, evidence-based information, that is the reconciling axis of everything, non-conscious intuition and rational decision-making. So where those two things meet, unless they're fully in agreement, the brain is going to be dissonant. And so if you see a benefit that ticks off the rational piece, then the brain's more likely to go, okay, this is not going to fail necessarily. I can feel the benefit. And then there's a strategy of how to, you know, evidence-based strategy of what works, a pathway. How long does it take? What do you need to do? How do you go from blushes of enthusiasm to actually get these neural networks mm. wired together? And, 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 and that is a huge science and a very important, simple communication to people that's needed for that to be effective. But mm. that is what, in my personal view, is the essence. People underestimate that change is a threat. Yeah, the brain is just so happy with the status quo. We're status alive. Quo. Let's stay there. Let's stay alive. Right? And the brain is brilliant at rationalizing because mm -hmm. our conscious rationalizations are continually overriding our intuitions. People think intuition is the soft, woolly, la-la land thing. It's super powerful, and we don't know as much about it, ironically, as we do about our rational brains. But the rational brain is downstream. The intuition, fifth of a second, it takes one-fifth of one second for our brains to evaluate a situation, look at the cues, which are the communications the non-conscious brain operates in cues. Is this threatening? Is it rewarding? Should I approach or avoid? And versus... At about half a second, the conscious rationalization kicks in to go, is this threatening? Is this rewarding? And if it is, it'll give a reason. It'll rationalize a reason. So the brain is so good at rationalizing that it can rationalize our way out of not doing something, even if it's good for us, until we find that pathway, 
cocktail, a formula of pieces that come together to allow the brain to feel safe, feel a reward, and then have a strategy to go and create a new habit until it becomes an integral part of our daily life. It's actually remarkably straightforward, but the Mm. biggest gap in the world that we have seen is the gap between knowing and doing. Everybody knows this. And you know, you bring up something really interesting there about the subconscious mind and the conscious mind, which I'd like to delve in deeper a little further down our conversation as well. When you're talking about change, so the one thing is how our brain perceives change. What actually happens inside of the brain when change occurs? There's two kinds of change. Everything in the brain is all with, as far as we know, I know, and of course I don't have a monopoly of wisdom on any of this, but essentially the brain is continually evaluating the input of cues. The brain is essentially a super sophisticated simulation. It's simulating all the time, is this good for me? Is this bad for me? If it's good or bad, how good, how bad? So what the brain seems to be doing is that when there's a mismatch, like something is happening, I've had a bad experience with that before, it makes the connection, and then it goes, I'm not going there again. I can remember somewhere in my past, the neurons are firing little red flags there going, try not to go there again. Alternatively, the, the, the matching when it looks like, okay, the cues seem to be positive. Um, this looks like a, a deal I can trust, a person that I can trust. Um, this looks like an aligned connection of some kind. Then all the, the green flags are out, like, okay, this, let's move in that direction. So the brain is continually operating in this, like a simulation, literally mm-hmm. all the time. Of course, if things are very hardwired, a lot of what happens is just automatic, 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 because it's happened so many times, it's so well wired that the brain knows instantaneously for most things what's good or what's bad. But if there's something different, then the brain is, is in that potential cognitive dissonance mode, the dissonance between what it's seeing non-consciously, intuitively, and what the rational brain is telling it. That's where the real challenges occur for the Mm. brain to either accept or reject a pathway of change or a pathway of comfort. Stay still. Just repeat until it's so obvious that the change is going to be beneficial and so clear as to how you can do it without enormous discomfort. And one thing you just mentioned about, you know, when the brain, of course, has access to memories, ooh, something bad happened and a similar situation in the past. Is that also part of the reason why it is more difficult for adults to make changes, incorporate them than it is for children? I think so. I mean, part of the reason is that it would seem that in normal memory, a normal memory has a very clear, specific pathway that was discovered by Eric Kandel, who discovered the mechanisms of memory and got a Nobel Prize for that in 2000. And what um, Professor Kendall found, is, and others, but it's just so elegant the way it works, that the, the memory that you feel you want to remember something, it means you want to remember it because it's novel and useful, gets transferred from short-term memory into a long-term memory in your hippocampus, a little structure in the middle of your brain that looks like a seahorse, that's why it's called hippocampus. And mm-hmm. um, essentially... It takes a while for that conversion to occur from short-term to long-term memory. So um, when that happens, if that happens, then and it, and it, the whole process unfolds, 
then you you start getting that insight, the new insight being stored, and and it's okay. Um, but if you are challenged by um, by a situation where it's threatening that memory, that that set of memory networks, then um, the brain is much more. There's much more ambivalence. There's much more uncertainty, and uncertainty is the is the real threat. So mm. that's where the whole memory process, what you remember, how you store it, and how heavily it's stored. But just to complete the point, what happens with age is over time, if something is traumatic, so that's the process of memory, goes through the hippocampus, converted, then stored usually in the cortex, the outer part of the brain that is responsible for these detailed, you know, storages and processes and, and parallel processing options. But um, it turns out that if a memory is traumatic, if an experience is traumatic and you're going to remember it because it is traumatic, that goes not through the hippocampus. That goes through the amygdala, a little almond-shaped structure next to the hippocampus, also in the middle of the brain. Now, when that occurs, it appears that that storage of traumatic memory via the amygdala rather than the hippocampus is stored more intensely and remains more wired and for longer, so that when, as we get older, we have this preference for two reasons. One is the brain is about safety first, so it's yeah. going to naturally remember the traumas and the negatives. And two, you could have traumatic memories that have been stored more strongly. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason we remember bad things better than good <laughs> things. And it gets yeah. more and more as you go on. So that's why it <laughs> becomes harder and harder, that this kind of calculus that the brain has for change becomes more challenging as we get older. And that's and it, the, the power of this whole, you know, that's the beauty of just looking at the brain as a system, a whole mm-hmm. 85 billion neurons, hanging, looking at that like a mirror of yourself. And then you really have a shot at putting that all into a total brain pattern and seeing yeah. how you want to shape it. Superhumanize. What you just mentioned, I mean, it's, um, it's also kind of a little bit of a vicious circle. Uh, I, I'd like to talk about the negativity bias here, you know, and uh, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, our brain has five times the number of negative neural networks than it does positive ones, and which, of course, for survival reasons, danger, 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 is very important. Uh, you know, if we would have had to run from a saber-toothed tiger in the past, but, of course, in modern life, it really can mess with our existence. Not totally. So negativity, when we look in the database, there is 15% of people have a very, very high negativity bias. So what does that mean? The mm. essence of it is that they magnify threat mm-hmm. disproportionately. Now, we'd all know that as a catastrophizer, the worst example. And, you know, it's amazing, Aaron, wherever I go, when I, and we deal with a lot of people. So, yes, we deal with like 40 major corporates for employees, but we also deal with peak performers and, um, and teams and coach, executive coaches. And when people are asked, how many people does it take to ruin the dynamics of a team it is shocking to me how quickly they answer one. How can one person, how is it possible that one person can kill the dynamics, the good vibe? And it's because negativity is so contagious and people walk on eggshells when somebody is catastrophizing. Now, they sometimes can be really well-intentioned, like they could be a good analyst. So if somebody's in an investment network, for example, you want a good analyst to be able to look at the downside and be realistic, right? The problem is 
It's when you couple a good analytical, quantitative analytical input with a catastrophizer who's saying the sky is going to fall in and who's always magnifying the worst option scenario, that is terrifying for people because yeah. it taps non-consciously into their basic networks that are super sensitive to negativity because there's so many of them compared to positivity. So triggering that negativity bias, magnifying threat is the biggest derailer we have found for all performance, but especially for peak performance. Because peak performers, the, 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 the two biggest differences about peak performers is that they don't catastrophize mm. and they know how to train. They train with deliberate practice. So that is the two most distinguishing things we see, but the biggest is the way that they deal with stress mastery and they don't catastrophize. That's fascinating, Evian. And would you just, I love the word catastrophizer. I'm going to start using that on some people in my life. <laughs> and the one thing you said about, you know, how this one person can really ruin a corporate climate and uh, peak performance, not only for an individual, but if for a whole corporate culture. I think the same applies to us as a society. We have this saying, when it bleeds, it leads. And I think a whole lot of industries are making big cash based on this. I'm not going to name any networks here, but there are certain news networks You look at them and all you see is negativity, negativity, negativity. Oh my God, the world is so horrible because they know they hook our brains with us, right? But so what I want to ask you as a neuroscientist, what are the effects on us individually and of course also as a society if we're constantly exposing ourselves to this type of negativity? Well, it speaks for itself. You can just see the incredible contagious catastrophization that people make their livings from the media make it from catastrophizing situation and only focusing on the short term and when they focus on the long term even with things like environmental change people still have trouble the brain is not evolved to deal with long-term solutions so people are increasingly doing that but many people find comfort in in just you know in catastrophizing the short term so whether it's for everything uh, is is easy to hijack the brain fake news is one mm. of the best examples i've ever seen that you know i call it the pink elephant effect if i tell you not to think of a pink elephant you non-consciously could not help thinking of a pink elephant <laughs> at all and in fact i won't do too many of those because every time you see an elephant now for the rest of your life you're going to think non-consciously yeah this could whether whatever that pink elephant thing and the thing about pink elephant the pink elephant metaphor is this Once fake news gets into your head, even if you know that it's completely untrue, it's still percolating through your brain's 85 billion neurons. So unless we have a really good understanding of our own brains and our where do we sit on that continuum from being able to deal with a bit of um, uncertainty versus dealing with a growth mindset and change, where do we sit? with respect to the way that we deal with negativity. Do we, or do we magnify it? And you know, I've asked thousands of people by now and talks and stuff that I've given, how many people can be accurately calculate their ability to magnify threat on a scale of one to 10, where one's the worst you can be, 10's the best you can be, 10 you deal with it really well. People put up their hands straight away and they'll say, I know my score, you know, I'm a 3.5. So, 3.5 or below is a major catastrophizer. <laughs> and uh, people will go, I'm like, I'm a two. And then people who are the opposite, positivity bias. 
these are the Pollyannas. These are people who, even when there is a disaster and there's a really bad probability for for a good outcome, they'll go, no, everything has a reason. It's all going to be good. And it's amazing to see. It's the identical thing to catastrophizers just with Pollyannas. And so it's (laughs) something in the brain is there. And the brain is wonderful at overcompensating. You know, sometimes, Mm. you know, it's like introverts. Many introverts want to be extroverts Mm. and many extroverts want to be a bit more introverted. People specialize in the areas of greatest weakness because they cannot believe that they have got that flaw. Like, seriously, that's not me. So they overcompensate. So the overcompensation is another Uh Uh dimension of this dynamic. But the bottom line is that that negativity bias is is you know, top of the list from that I've seen to behaviorally understand in the way we deal with others, like especially mm. the catastrophizers. But it's hugely um, harmful to relationships, especially to teams and to, mm. I think, even cont- negative contagion can impact on an entire country, as we've seen. I won't, I won't get caught up in, in the politics of the day, <laughs> but it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Like, it's really yeah. fascinating. Superhumanize. So how do we deal with these catastrophizers? How do we deal with them in our private lives or in corporate culture? What is a good way of shutting them down or minimizing the damage? So I'll tell you a solution that I came up with with a colleague of mine who's we work together in executive coaching. I'm not an executive coach. I just get a guest appearance sometimes to talk about the brain. And so what we came up with, because this was such a challenging issue for some of the corporate coaching, was this. When there people are in the room, and there's a discussion going on. This I'm just giving you the one-minute snapshot. So mm-hmm. what happened is we found that people who are catastrophizers, firstly, they'll be the first people to speak. So somebody will give a pitch and be super constructive about something. And, of course, this is totally going to kill any type of innovation or creativity. They go, they use the following three things. They say the word, but, I'm concerned, or they fold their hands. Now, I <laughs> now, when that happens to me, I will leave the room because I know that there's no point in staying on any further because the contamination is in. The pink elephant is in everybody's brain and the eggshells are out. So the (laughs) elephant is pincing around there. It's over. As far as I'm concerned, I've never seen a positive outcome. If anybody sees one, I'd love to be told about it. To any discussion where that happens. Now, Mm -hmm. the solution Mm -hmm. that we found is that before the discussion happens, we ask the head, usually the CEO, but if not the CEO, who's the influencer of the room, are there any catastrophizers? And they know immediately who it is. So let's say we say Alan is the catastrophizer. We go to Alan before the conversation starts and we say, Alan, we've been told that you're the smartest person in the room. So what we're going to ask of you is to keep quiet until the discussion is over, but then we would like your views as to everything you've heard. And we'd like you to write up on the board what the problems are. And I have seen this. It's so weird. Alan gets up at the end. Firstly, Alan is, has to be shut down a few times along the way, I found. But <laughs> the metaphorical Alan, but I've done this. You know. And then Alan goes and writes up the problems at the end, proudly. You be there for You leave him long enough, it'll write out enough problems, make your head spin. But write up the problems. And then you ask a very simple question. What are the solutions? And that's the beginning of the change. It's easy to catastrophize. It's easy to kill relationships. It's very hard to find solutions. And the second thing that I found that is really important 
he's not the blame game. Like, yes, I've sort of made and kind of been a little patronizing about that joke and that story about negativity biased people because I really do believe it and it's scary. It scares me. In my old age now, I will almost do anything to avoid dealing with any more catastrophizes. It's taken, <laughs> it's been such an opportunity cost in my life and in many, many big opportunities that we've done. I will not go there if I can help it. So I have a visceral reaction. So I'm biased. So putting my bias in play, there's one other thing that I have found, and that is that we all have this stuff. So the final piece that I think is helpful is the insight that if the brain is about safety first, which I'm then everybody has a tendency to be a little bit of a catastrophizer in the right circumstances. And so there's an empathy, a kind of, this is not a them and us. We all live on a continuum from kind of mental health challenges on the one end of the normal distribution, if you think about it as normal distribution, where we sort of challenged by magnifications of these dynamics of safety and how we deal with non-conscious biases and trauma that we've had. And then many people in the middle are like quite good well-being, a good balance. And then on the right-hand side of the normal distribution are people who have tremendously good mental fitness and they peak performers and they have sort of optimizations, as you said at the beginning, you're a peak mm -hmm. performer and you have optimizations of things um, across the board. However, even with the best peak performers that I've dealt with, and some of them are unbelievable, I've never come across anybody, as I've got to know them, who has not also got periods where they are challenged by mental health mm. issues, where they mm. feel negative and feel a bit depressed and feel a bit catastrophizing. And very they normal. have an anxiety and it's just a matter. So the only thing that changes, therefore, for most of us, I mean, there's some extreme brain injury, but putting those to one side, the only thing that changes on that continuum is the extent you have it and the effectiveness with which you cope with it. So that's actually a brilliant analogy of all these catastrophizers, and I'll take that to heart. Now I know how to deal with the elements of the world. Uh, Evian, you've developed a type of a map of our brain's core elements, which you call the brain one, two, four model. Can you explain us a little more about that? Yeah, so what we did was uh, a team of scientists, when we set up the world's first standardized international database, we just looked at the data and the science, and essentially it's very simple. It came, we, we then extracted from the data, what is the most explanatory power? And it's sort of the essence of it is this, the one minute snapshot. Firstly, safety first is the organizing principle. So that's one. So you yep. need to be safe before you can go for rewards. Rewards, obviously the converse, but it's safety first, then everything else falls into place. So whenever you're training something, whenever you want to change, you want to do that first. Number two, there are two modes of processing, non-conscious. We don't call it unconscious. It's a non-conscious. You're actually aware of it. Like right now, we are aware of body language cues and resonances and alignments and talking. And we, we, even doing this by Zoom, we've, you know, we've, we've shared other ideas in the past. And we know that we, we all kind of aligning these, these ideas, these intuitions are coming together and they're meaningful. That's non-conscious. Intuition matters. And then there's conscious rational, detailed speech and logic. So those, the two, non-conscious and conscious. And then there's four key functions in the brain. Emotion, that's kind of your intuition. It's thinking, looking at these cues and forming patterns with these cues that form your intuition. 
but essentially these fifth of a second evaluations of people's body language. Are they saying things that are threatening or rewarding? Is the situation threatening or rewarding? That is your emotions and it's mm-hmm. non-conscious and it is the driver. And if you have biases, if you have a non-conscious bias, for example, we all know about biases for gender and race. So I'm putting those out the window. That, that's obvious. And there's no solution to that other than education and training ourselves and being open-minded and knowing that it's, we're all the same. So putting those two awful biases aside and very dangerous ones, there is the one other I'll focus on, which is confirmation bias, because the brain is about safety. People want to look for evidence that confirms their preconception about what's safe for them. So if they don't deal well with uncertainty, they will scour for evidence about what makes their view right. They're really good at probabilistic thinking and care about the future in a, in a kind of complex, the complexities, the reality of complexity. They will find confirmation bias that suits them. So there's the examples, right? That we, that's emotions. That's a fifth of a second. Within half a second, let's say it's a fear, something fearful happens to us. You will feel your heart rate go up, your sweat, your breathing changes. Those physical changes in our body are our feelings. They are just the experience, the subjective experience of our emotions. So emotions and feelings are very different. And it's important to know that if you want to adopt this model, this total brain model of looking at yourself as a system, brain-body system, and on the basis of understanding how your own system works, learning how to tweak it to where you want to be, to where you want to choose yourself, you can choose yourself with these insights. So that's emotions, feelings. Cognition is the third emotion. So these are the four of the underpinning core functions. Emotions, feelings, cognition, everybody knows. It's memory, focus, and planning. And lastly is self-control, which is how you can bring all of that together to have some sort of self-regulation about your resilience, your negativity bias, your social connectedness. It's the sort of bigger issues that incorporate the others but bring them in. Now, all of this has been integrated into TotalBrain, TotalBrain.com, and we can evaluate those key functions, emotion, feeling, cognition, and self-control, each of which have three capacities. So emotion has three capacities. I'll just give you an example. Mm -hmm. One is emotion awareness would be a capacity of emotion. Feeling has three capacities. I'll just give you one. Stress is a capacity of feeling. So that's one capacity. And Cognition, I've already mentioned the three capacities, let's just say memory. And self-control, a key capacity there would be resilience. Mm -hmm. So those 12 capacities are evaluated in 20 minutes, coupled with a mental health screen of seven mental health conditions. So you get a sense of where are my challenges. So that's essentially the brain one, two, four model. It's the one, two, Mm -hmm. four, but increasingly, and uh, it's been shaped. And, and made more and more consumer-friendly, especially by the new team that's t- that runs Total Brain, headed by the CEO, Louis Gagnon, who's a, literally one of the top product developers in the, on the planet. And yes, that yes. innovation has mm-hmm. brought these ideas into a very much more, more user-friendly, because it's got to be usable, it's got to be engaging, it's got to be usable. So that Brain124 model, and those 12 capacities 
mental health screen and that awareness, that insight, that's the mirror of ourselves and that's how the brain one, two, four, slash 12 capacities, the four key things are the four key functions of about 12 capacities. That's essentially how the model works. And then when we go into the database or when we read any science information, it all gets kind of put into the, the, the drawer. If you're reading about emotions and now if you've got that model, you can put that information in the emotion drawer, in the feeling drawer, mm. and then all of it starts becoming more and more easy to digest, more and more tractable in terms of how it interconnects. And that makes it less and less likely to be overwhelmed. So the reason why that model is so important in our view, and again, it's not our something, not just we're not making this up, it's coming out of the science, is because it's very easy to be overwhelmed by information. There's so much of it about the brain. So always, yes. The people who use this model, the biggest, I'll end off by saying this, the people who are most effective in life, the experts, are the biggest difference between an expert and a dilettante, somebody who's got stacks of facts and he can be, or she can be impressive, but they don't go anywhere. It's mainly to impress people versus the difference with a peak performer with an expert is they have a model and they don't know many, maybe as many facts as the dilettante, but they know how it works and mm. they know the essence of what's leading to what and how you can affect it and what predictions can you make from it. So models are the basis of self-empowerment and the model of the brain must be the most ultimate empowerment of being able to, um, to deal most effectively with all Absolutely. the dynamics. Yes, yes. And you know, I went from, well, I still am kind of a dilettante interested in everything, but I went from being a dilettante to becoming more of an expert also because of what you mentioned, total brain. And uh, for those in our audience uh, who are not acquainted with it yet, you already spoke some about it, but it's a neuroscience-based mental health and fitness platform that improves peak brain performance through brain-based self-awareness and training. And total disclosure here, I'm not only a big believer in total brain, but also a shareholder. Because uh, as a biohacker, I know that the brain is the most powerful tool to optimize ourselves. And what you are just speaking about, um, you are actually, your work and your knowledge is actually implemented by many leaders of Fortune 100 companies. You know, you help um, develop well-being programs for their employees that help to reduce stress and build resilience. You also help uh, leaders become really strong leaders. What is the most important quality of a strong leader or, or a brain-based leader? Yeah, look, I think, and um, and I, I, I'm not deliberately trying to push the vested interest of total brain. It really is just the, the, the best summary. And it's, again, it's just a summary of so many people's ideas mm -hmm. and thoughts and data. So I, I, I hope I don't come across as too mercenary by talking. Not at all. It's fascinating. But, um, but it, the, the thing about leadership that is intriguing to, to, to me is that Increasingly, I see it is about um, as about innovation, about creativity, and you know the the issue of creativity. People, I, lo I love hearing. So often, I hear this, and especially from some very wealthy people who've been super effective at making a lot of money. And of course, we all know that focus, focus. It's all about execution, and of course, that's true. And there is a, a, a sort of diamond-shaped dynamic that is very well known, which is on the left, is sort of divergent thinking, divergent thinking of coming up with new ideas. 
And then you find the new ideas by connecting new dots together or, or, new, or new insights. And then you've got to implement. And that's the other side of the equation where you've got to get into your conscious mode. Detailed processing still requires a lot of innovation, of course. My point about leadership is this. This is my very personal view. Now, this is not a total brain view. This is my personal view. I hear a lot of people say, especially some of my wealthier friends who have been super successful at implementation, they go, ideas are cheap. Execution is everything. And you know what I say to them? They usually don't like this answer. I say the only people who say ideas are cheap are people who don't have them. Now, I don't <laughs> the ideas that, you know, I think we should do this with this. will be a great business. No, I don't talk about that. I'm talking about deep, insightful ideas, a Steve Jobs level of idea where he knew that this was going to be a mirror into ourselves and that this was going to change the medium and the message. That's an idea. Now, why do I think leadership is primarily about that? Because I see so many leaders who are imposters. They can walk the walk. They can talk the talk. And they're pretty good at it. I mean, they can come in and cut jobs and rise share prices. Good luck. Real leadership, I think, is above all about the quality of ideas. And they can surround themselves by the most brilliant implementers. As Louis Gagnon has done, he's surrounded himself. Mm. He's got like gun implement. I've never seen anything like this. And he is amazing, but he yeah. knows choose implementers. He knows the difference. And that to me is what leadership is. You know, I'll just tell you one other weird thing. People think this is easy, the quality of ideas. You know, as a scientist, has over 250 publications. When I ask my fellow scientists, how many people do you know who actually know how to ask a good science question? And I'll give you one example. There's a man called John Rush. He ran the biggest study on depression in the United States prior to a study that we happen to have run on predicting treatment response in depression. So he's the chairman of our publication committee for a study we ran on depression to predict who should and shouldn't go into medication. And I said to John, John, all your publications, how many people have you met who really know how to ask a simple question? He says, it is unbelievably rare. I said, but you deal with the heaviest academics on the planet. Like, how's that possible? And he said, test it. And it is amazing to me, like good ideas, good questions in science, simple questions, easily falsifiable one way or the other, that have significant implications, that are not just some deep silo, but have profound implications, or like good ideas in the real world. They're hard. They don't. Mm. They don't just, and last thing I want to tell you about why I think this leadership issue is so interesting. I'm also a student of creativity. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I've seen from the researchers in creativity is that Good ideas come from people who are having them all the time. Most of the ideas that they have are pretty mediocre, but they're generative. They're creating ideas. Right. It's a habit. It's part of their thinking. But they know the difference between an also-ran idea, the ones that are cheap, and the ones that are not. And that's why I think this leadership issue is something very deeply challenging and very rare. I do not think it's common. Superhumanize. Unfortunately so. And you just touched upon creativity and, you know, creativity in a sense is also a habit. It's not when the muse kisses us. It's really getting out there, getting your thoughts to flow and engaging your brain in different ways in order to come up with things and making it a habit. And I think that's also a hugely important part of optimizing our performance, creating new habits, rituals and practices. 
how does brain training have to happen in order to most effectively and sustainably train new habits? I know you have a program, I think it's 30 days, right, to effectively train a new brain habit. How does that work? So I'll just summarize it very quickly. Look, the first thing we found is that most people fail. I mean, that's just a fact. Like, let's just say, I don't know the exact number, it depends on the habit, but 80%, 20% of people succeed. So what are they doing? What are the successful people mm -hmm. doing? It's like looking at peak performance. And the summary, the essence is this. If you do not bring the key pieces together about what makes a habit work, you are going to be caught in some silo, you're going to have some transient, enthusiasm it's transient and you're gonna it's not gonna happen so what are the factors the first thing is you've got to be ready so you need to assess yourself are you ready to change number one mm -hmm. number two if you are ready you need to own it it's called motivational interviewing it's a whole research field in itself which is even if people are ready if they don't get across where we started this discussion which is if they don't get across their threat to change so they've got to actually own it. And here's the weird thing, talking about non-conscious threats. If you tell people what to do, you're more likely doing them more harm than good. You're threatening them because you're mm. threatening them with change they may not be ready for. So, you, so just to give you one quick strategy of motivational interviewing is instead of telling people what to do, you give them three multiple choice questions. Mm -hmm. To reduce stress, would you like to stay the way you are? Would you like to, uh, do you think that's going to be good for you? Do you feel that it's not worth the effort? Or do you feel that if you took a proper program and did it, that you could actually affect your own change? So that they then have to answer that question. By answering that question, they're moving from conscious to non-conscious because they're now owning it. If they say it, it's got to be true because they said it. If right. you say it, there's many reasons <laughs> that they can have non-conscious pushbacks. So that's number two. Number three is you need to have a pathway. You need to know what are the things that work in habits. So just... Everybody knows this, but just to complete this whole story. So everybody knows that small steps do it. Small steps. You cannot make those steps small enough. Why? Mm. Because if you complete a small step, you win. And if you win, you secrete dopamine. If you secrete dopamine, the brain's coming back. It's, it's no threat. So the small steps are the most critical. But the second thing is strategies. So just one that I'll mention is anchoring. So if you say, okay, I'm already brushing my teeth every morning. That's my anchor. Mm -hmm. After I've brushed my teeth, Within 15 minutes, I'm going to do my exercise. You've increased the likelihood of that becoming a habit because you're leveraging off an existing habit, an anchor. Then number four is you need to understand milestones. People go through milestones of a habit. Like the first time they do something is huge. It's not like, how many times did you do that? Once means you've bought into the program. You're drinking the Kool-Aid, man. So you're already in the path. You're on the path is my... Mm -hmm as my spiritual friends would say. So you're on the path. You're in one. Now, by the seventh time you're doing it, so this is a 30 training days challenge we found gets people across the line. By the seventh day, you've already learned the most of what you're going to learn about how to do this thing and how to get it to happen. By 20 times, we've got a publication in the Journal of Science and Innovation that shows by 20 times you significantly changing that brain capacity. So if you're training focus, the key to training focus, for example, is mm -hmm. task completion. Focus is, who cares about focus? You can focus in the moment. But if you're not focusing to complete tasks, you're in the info, infotainment business. So that's the issue is you've got to train with the end in mind. So you train the focus, 
of task completion. So by 20, you're already increasing your focus capacity. You've learned about focus. You've learned about the different type of focus for when you're innovating for versus when you're implementing. You've learned about distraction. You've learned about multitasking. This is not a simple thing. You've got to really be immersively doing it. The next thing is deliberate practice. If you do not train with deliberate practice, which means in the small step, you want to use feedback to continually improve. The brain is about neuroplasticity. It is changing every second. From the beginning of this conversation to the end, we do not have the same brains. We have rewired certain ideas and thoughts and jokes. and We're not the same people. It, now, it may be fractional. We are neuroplasticity simulation systems. And so if you train and get feedback and make yourself better and you use that feedback thoughtfully and you train with the end in mind, that's deliberate practice. Focus is about task completion. And anything, you just play some little game and it's hugely entertaining, you're in the entertainment business. That's not focus. <laughs> it's got to be not too engaging and not too entertaining. And that's part of the strategy of getting the right pieces. And lastly, you need to track it. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So you mm. track every day, you mm -hmm. tick off every day you've trained and you check your score, is your score's getting better or you're going up in an Oscar. Now, when you put all that together, you've got a habit pathway for life. And if you just do one habit, it doesn't matter what it is, stress reduction, improve your focus, it doesn't matter. Mm. Better, try veganism for months. It's irrelevant what you try. You do that once based on those brain principles you have changed your life. You're part of the brain revolution. So and you can change yeah. anything off that. You can aim that lens and that process on anything, but you've got to do it once, just once, with a brain in mind, a total brain in mind, if you, if you want to have my, my, my totally biased view. But that's my summary. I love it. And, uh, and it, I mean, with this in mind, you could literally change... 12 major things very easily within the course of a year. Why don't yeah. you just, yeah. So you can choose yourself. You literally, people initially thought I was joking when I said that. They said, oh my God, choose myself? I can't yeah. even find it. I can't yeah. even change anything. You can choose yourself, literally. And it's more likely to lead to finding a mission, a purpose, a goal, because when you believe you can change and you do change one thing, it can be something trivial. Mm you're in the brain revolution and that changes people dramatically and you know there's one thing i think that is a major factor uh, for a lot of people not embarking upon this journey of change and that is the fact that most of us deal with constant stress in this fast-paced type of culture we're living in which also means we're trapped in this constant fight or flight mode how can we easily flip that switch and tap into a more non-reactionary creative mindset a more cognitively flexible mindset so to speak so that's really the key so we come back to the model so lovely to have a model we got rain one two four we look at number one so if you in fight flight mode because your stress has gone beyond the point where it's useful stress is hugely useful if it's mm -hmm. moderate mild and it activates you to be more focused activates you to be more engaged activate you to be more determined but of course, as soon as it crosses that line, we'd activate your fight flight, which is only designed to get you out of danger in seconds. Now it's making it chronic. Now you're secreting cortisol. Cortisol is killing your hippocampal cells. 
cortisol is messing up your immune system. It's messing with your gut biome. It's changing everything. The most dangerous effect of anything is sustained cortisol. It's making you your system more inflammatory. So you're getting all the downside of chronic stress, which is very likely to be responsible for all the chronic illnesses on the planet today, or at least contribute to them in some way, if not those that it's actually primarily contributing to. So the switch out of fight flight is to get into the converse. There's only two systems in your body. You're either in fight flight or you're in calm, flexible. It's called the vagus state. The 10th mm -hmm. cranial nerve supplies this calm, flexible state. Flexibility is the hallmark of adaptability because to be adaptive, you need to be a bit flexible. You need to know when it is time to change your mind. You need to know that having a growth mindset is being open to new ideas and sometimes taking them on board. So to do that switch is a whole lot of strategies that you know about, but I am just going to quickly summarize them because they, again, so easy to say, so hard to do unless you do them immersively. Number one is breath. Tremendous breath tools on Total Brain, and particularly Total Brain, I would say mm -hmm. that, and it's not out of, it comes from a wonderful source, a company called Telex and uh, Art of Living, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. It is mm -hmm. breathtakingly good, if you'd excuse the pun. Breath and is number very one. powerful, yes. Very powerful. Now, in addition to breath, there's another little tweak on breath that the uh, ex-president of the American Biofeedback Society shared with me, and I'm eternally grateful for him, Dick Gewurz from Allianz University, Professor Dick Gewurz. And that is when you breathe at six breaths per minute, and you, especially if you, if some people don't like you doing technology while they relax, so you don't have to, you can do the technology a bit, breathe at six breaths per minute. Six breaths per minute is the best switch people have found to switch you out of fight flight into Vegas. So adding to breath occasionally techniques like six breaths per minute breathing, it's a sort of, the way Dick Gewurz summarized it for me, he said it's a 2,500-year-old idea with adding a bit of science, a bit of recent <laughs> science. And then, then, of course, meditation. We all know the powers yes. of meditation, but especially if it's targeted meditation. But, you know, there's a lot of other methodologies that are personalized. So let me just mention a few. And again, mm -hmm. I'm very indebted to Dr. Heidi Hanna, who's the executive director of the American Institute of Stress. And she really has distilled these kind of insights from the 50 top people of stress in, in stress researchers in the United States. But there's things like a music site that we work with called Focus at Will, where listening to different kinds of music is a wonderful way of breaking stress and putting you into a different mind state. We all know that. It's just the more granular and specific you listen to the music, the more it will change your mood. Aromatherapy is one I learned about. I it's love it. Amazingly powerful. Um, of course, we all know about exercise and we all know about the right nutrition. And, but I, I, I will say that there are lots of strategies that amaze me. Those are the top ones in my mind, but there's an increasing list of, of strategies that people find and use. Um, positive affirmations, for example. I'm amazed at the number of people who just find a good positive affirmation and visualizing a symbol can switch them out of fight flight into Vegas. But that's all it takes. It takes learning what is your preferred style of what works for you and then locking it in and and whatever it is, whether it's a, a, a whether it's a mantra, whether it's a visualization symbol, whether it's music, aromatherapy, the type of breath, 
and actually learning when it's most effective to do it most. But switching out of fight flight into calm, flexible Vegas is the single most impactful thing I believe we can do. Yes. And, you know, also something that I've realized about fight or flight, and I pretty much use all of the methods that you mentioned. They are so powerful, so effective, simple to do. And another thing that I've really noticed that has taken me out of what used to be kind of a constant fight or flight mode is a change of diet. You know, I have been plant-based for many, many years now, and also here at this podcast, Superhumanize. We're all about leveling up mentally, physically, spiritually, and creating a superhuman, so to speak. And one of the main principles to achieve this is our AVAP philosophy, as vegan as possible. So a very, very strong focus on eating plant-based exclusively, or at least mainly, if you start with it. And um, I would like to know from you, because you switched to plant-based nutrition a few years ago when I first met you, you were still a vegetarian. So how has a vegan nutrition affected your well-being and brain performance? My vegan uh, switch has been very life-changing for me on, on two fronts. And I'm very indebted to my wife, Jennifer Franklin, who sort of kind of just, you know, seeing the effect it had on her was what, what was just so transformative for me. But what it did is two things, Ariane. The first is just the straight-out um, physical health. I Even somebody who did their PhD in serum lipids, so I was a, on the pathway, the golden highways of cardiology, and I, I understood a reasonable amount about, about these issues, but I just did not fully realize the toxicity of animal products, just from a purely health point of view, the, mm -hmm. the, the antibiotics, the hormones, the sheer toxicity and inflammatory impact of eating animals um, has been a shock to me. I just somehow was so conditioned and accepting and obviously exposed to all the marketing that I just, it was the pink elephant effect that got in and I bought into it. I drank the Kool-Aid all my life. I thought I loved animal food. I loved the taste and bought into the taste and rationalized the reason that I was able to be part of the animal industrial complex. I was just, and now it's like, I'm going, what was I thinking? So putting, so the first piece is, it's just been really interesting from a pure health point of view. I can feel the difference. I feel less inflamed. I have an ulcer from my stress life. Of, uh, so I'm by no means, by the way, a poster person for anything. I'm the person you shouldn't be. So I just want to be clear about that. I'm not one of those people that's a good example practice what you preach. I just, I was a, 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 a sort of food junkie. I'd eat anything. I was, you know, I was a pescatarian, but I, I wasn't eating well. Anyway, I see the difference now and it's real. And um, there's a, a, a vegan channel that Jennifer is starting in January called Vegan Brain. Mm -hmm. well, we're going to elucidate as best we can the details. I mean, I'm just a guest appearance occasionally, but uh, what I'm doing on my guest appearances is to um, just make explicit as possible the actual science the science behind seriously people so we've got a, a vegan brain food pyramid and um, because there's a lot of sort of brain diets that are coming out now but they usually involve fish and mm -hmm. I, I don't believe you need fish it's uh, there's enough protein substitutes now Oof. that you don't need any and talk about heavy metals i mean brain health and heavy metals that does not go together not at all there's so many things that it's like oh my god so i want to just present them i'm not a renter hopefully 
Uh, I'm not into, I mean, I don't mind renters. It's all fun to watch them on the vegan channels. But I think this, this is just attempted at being a gravitas brain, dispassionate summary of, look, these are the foods that are really shown to be useful, the ones that diminish inflammation. I'll give you one concrete example, but kind of detail. Like, just even take omega-3, right? Um, so omega-3, I used to think, yeah, that's interesting. Like, I'm sure it has some effect on neuroplasticity, your ability to build new networks. Um, and then a, a friend of mine who actually introduced us to the AARP, Brian Hickson, and his, his co-founder, um, Daniel Johnson, they showed me some data from people from the Framingham study that showed that actually the level of your omega-3 is pretty important, and especially your 3-6 ratio. So the long mm. and the short of it is, again, most people know that. But um, as a vegan, I was taking the wrong substitutes. I was taking the ALA version of omega-3 versus the EDA and EHA. So my 3 to 6 ratio, six omega-3, omega-6 is bad for you. It's like a really bad. And omega-3 is good, right? So I didn't know any of these details until I did a, a little pinprick test of a, a thing they have called brain spam. And I, I looked at that and then realized that the details are critical. Like firstly, I was taking the wrong thing. I was taking a substitute that was for ALA, which has no benefit. And then I had to find a vegan-based product, um, which was um, not made from animals, which could give it the right omega-3. And what was the quantity? You need really high dosages, actually, to have an impact and get the right ratio. And then these people, the, uh, Daniel and, and, and Brian, they studied 30,000 people with these measures and using our assessment. So now we've got data that can show that even something that simple like omega-3-6, mm -hmm. you can increase your cognition and your cognitive uh, capacity. So there's an example of an evidence-based, it's early days, but that shocked me like, wow, because I was very skeptical and remain very skeptical about many of the claims. And I, I spoke to a collaborator, a friend of mine, somebody I've recently got to know, but a friend of mine who knows him well, has worked with him, at a Stanford uh, a nutritionist, and I said, how solid is this evidence of all these things you know, like walnuts improve your memory and blueberries? He said, you, you know, a lot of this, the data is not well resolved in terms of how much, what's the effort to benefit ratio, and how much does it really change? So what I want to do is, is really clarify the details and just put them out there, share them with people in a, in a vegan food pyramid and, and build it up over time. I want you and Jennifer to be on the podcast again once uh, that yeah, well, Jennifer will be the live. expert. She, it's it's her channel, but I'll, I'll just think it's bad. But I want to just briefly end off with the second part of your question. Superhumanize. I am not a judgmental person. I'm a brain person, as I said. Like if you take the catastrophizing story, yes, I hate it. I can't deal with it anymore. But I do also realize there's got to be a kind of hubris about this. You know, like we all are part of everything. So the same with eating animals. I, I try not to be judgmental. But I do know this, psychologically, it is such a relief to me to no longer be in the animal industrial complex chain. It is such a psychological benefit to me, a positive dopaminergic oxytocin sharing with people. <laughs> it has been one of the most cleansing, psychological, brain issues I have ever done in my life purely from that point of view of the sense of entitlement challenging that entitlement that it is that i had the right 
to go and be responsible for the torture and cruelty to animals, to be able to eat food that I thought tasted right, is been a massive revelation to me. And therefore, I will try and articulate, again, without sounding like a renter. It sounds like a bit of a renter there. Um, I have to definitely tone that down. But um, it is just, I'm being honest with you, it has been a revelation to me that the benefit of veganism from a just human self-reflection point of view has been um, striking to me. I can agree with you wholeheartedly. And the one thing is the feeling of not being responsible anymore for causing harm. And the other is that I just feel my lifestyle is in tune with my values. And I don't have these oppose, opposing behavior and opposing values united in my mind anymore. And that is a huge relief. Yeah, I only, I only really have one value in life. It's the Socrates value. There's only the only good is is knowledge, and the only evil is ignorance. That's my only value in life. So, so to me, this is knowledge. You know, it's like a new mm. knowledge. It's a new window on seeing things, and it's been such a relief. And look, I know many of my friends you know, interrogate me and go, "Oh, excuse me, aren't those leather shoes?" And uh, and I get it. I get it. I'm not. I, I love your concept, by the way. Be as best as you can. That's mm. been super helpful to me. Mm -hmm. But I am trying to to be um, more than just as best as I can. I want to be, I want to be, you know, all in. And I'm sure it's a journey. It's a journey. And you know what you just said? I have to tell you, give the compliment right back to you. Your work on the brain and also because it was a discussion with you that actually really also inspired me and in how I want to forward my message about veganism, plant-based eating, AVAP, which is the acronym for as vegan as possible, because you explained to me one day also that, you know, the human brain hates nothing more than failure. <laughs> so when people stand in front of a potential huge change in life, they're so afraid to fail. So I have experienced when you leave them a little bit of an opening, a little bit of an out and say, hey, just go plant-based mainly. If you have the birthday of your auntie and you have a piece of cheesecake, it's okay. Don't scrap the entire mission. Just jump back on the green wagon the next day. You know, the other thing, just thinking aloud now as part of our conversation, you know that motivational interviewing thing where if mm -hmm. you tell people what to do, they can have a non-conscious pushback. And that's why you see, when you look at the vegan channel, you see some people are so reactive to being mm -hmm. told they're vegan. And mm -hmm. I know... Jennifer and I have been at many dinner parties where people say, you're vegan? Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? You know, so we get that a lot. Like you have horns it. on your head. Like, oh, my goodness. This is, this is bad. But, of course, it's changing. It's changing. But the point is, from a motivational interviewing point of view, when people are told to be AVAP, then they can own it. They can own it without feeling that need that they're being, talked, being told to. And that doesn't trigger that non-conscious. So it's a really, yes. really productive idea. It's a meme that I hope lives on and, and gets magnified uh, on scale because it's really important. Well, thank you, Evian. And thank you for being such an inspiration also on that level. I have derived a lot of knowledge that I could practically apply in my private life, but also in my calling and in my business missions. It's really been invaluable. And something I just love about you is you're not just such a brilliant cutting-edge scientist, you are also an artist. You're actually a really prolific painter. And if I'm correct, what I see behind your shoulder is a painting of yours, right? 
it is on the slide and up. So it uh-huh. is, it is, it's hard to see. But look, art to me is something, you know, when like you asked about, uh, about the importance of creativity and innovation, I think the brain, if this is correct, of this non-conscious conscious dynamic that is at play every second of our lives to me the the non-conscious world is about symbols it's about metaphors it's about patterns and so to me art is about exploring those patterns i've painted for years i paint sort of one thing at a time and the thing i'm painting at the moment is just simple faces just the outline of a face is behind me and then this picture behind me has got lots of little dots in it it's about patterns of the brain. You know, one of the things around it that so shocked me that people, and I understand why, people have trouble really believing that these 85 billion neurons between the ears, and it's this entire cosmos. So it's so overwhelming. The complexity is so daunting that it's just impossible to do. So even though I'm an abstract artist, I study non-conscious patterns, um, I just wanted to try and make a metaphor of the patterns that happen in our brain across the spectrum of things we've spoken about. They're different brain patterns that are activating as we talk about them. Threat, reward, creativity, focus. Um, and I try to just capture them in a very loose way. So I'll, when I paint, I'm completely non-conscious. I'm just boom, right into it. And this one behind me is just lots of dots in a certain pattern. So that the metaphor, of course, is people, when they connect their own dots, they put together their own total brains. That's the empowerment. That's the metaphor. But the, the metaphor is simple. It's that patterns people understand. Mm. And when they see patterns of the brain, I think it acts partially as a bridge mm-hmm. to one other metaphor to help make this explicit, that it's important that we have some sense, that our brain is real, that it operates by these quite stand, simple patterns and that they're changing state all the time. It's it's neuroplastic, it's adaptive, very adaptive, that's the key, and that we can change it. And that's not that complicated. Of course, there's thousands of facts about the brain, and we don't really understand fully how consciousness happens. I get that. Of course, there's a lot we don't know, but there's a lot we do know, and there's a lot we can use, and mm-hmm. it's transformative if you use it even partially. And we are in the midst of a brain revolution, and the only anecdote I see in my biased, confirmation-biased little way, is that a brain-based culture cuts across so many of these simplistic tribal beliefs, these dichotomies that are imploding the planet, these extreme religious dichotomies, and even the 199% gap that I think is the ultimate obscenity on the planet that seems to have been recurring throughout human history, these really elitist usually luck or it used to be genetics now it's increasing your luck and a little bit of smarts a little bit of good implementation mm-hmm. but i think it's changing i think there really is a kind of more level playing field that's emerging because of the internet and i think that we are living in an era that pace of change is so rapid that my 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 conclusion in all of this is that if you're not already a little bit brain-based you're going to be left behind already let alone your poor children and grandchildren who are going to, you know, be trapped in some mm. sort of um, conditioned, simplistic, homogenized way of thinking? So I believe that brain-based thinking and practice is no longer just a nice thing to have, a cool, interesting thing to do. I think it is integral to individual people's future survival mm. or, or future thriving. Anyway, mm-hmm. I I could not agree more, and uh, I think. 
everything you said here is absolutely correct. And we are in the midst of a brain revolution. There's been so much progress made with regards to neuroscience. And at the same time, it's interesting because it still feels like we're kind of uh, in the infancy of brain science. So where do you think in the next 10 years from now will be uh, regarding our insights about the brain and how will we use them? So I don't know. And then I do know that the first thing is the, the biggest thing I think that's going to happen is this huge realization that our brains are mainly about non-conscious processing is going to become real. It's not going to be a joke. It's not going to be like, oh, that's like esoteric. It's real. And we've opened the door to the non-conscious brain. We've been one of the research groups that literally we measured people's brain function while they were looking at information that they couldn't see. So the information was on the screen so fast, 10 milliseconds, 10,000 per second, that it was non-conscious. So we now know that you can actually quantify and start to elucidate what's really going on in this non-conscious brain. So I think that's going to be the biggest thing, where people are going to realize that there, there is a time to pause and understand the entire implications of the fact that we are all driven by intuitions, biases, non-conscious processing, early conditioning processes that have dramatic effects. The second, so just that's one point, just in the interest of time, and, and, and maybe I've, I've spoken too much today, but, 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 but in the interest of time, I'll just cut to one other example. So if that's the big insight that I think is going to change the game, intuition, emotion, and understanding that emotion regulation is everything, then the second thing is biometrics. I think we are going to enter an era we, and we're actually doing this ourselves at Total Brain, starting with the American Heart Association, we're doing this at the moment, using eye watches, but also other measures that eventually are going to be built into our clothing and they're going to be an integral part of measuring us and giving us feedback. And, you know, there are bots out there already that you can sc scroll the internet and bring you back pieces of information that are useful to you, tools that are useful to you. So instead of being scared of technology, overwhelmed and distracted by it, with discipline and with the right model and mm -hmm. with the right benefits, I think technology will be able to be deployed by us rather than overwhelm us. And I think that that human-computer interaction is going to be a very constructive, um, interactive, and growth uh, dynamic of the future. Mm. Evian, you've been so generous with your time, and I could talk to you for hours and I hope I'll get another opportunity to have you on the podcast again because this field is just so huge and fascinating to me. I do like however to button up each conversation that I have with a guest with specific question and that is what are the most fundamental habits or practices that had the most profound effect on optimizing your life mentally, physically, spiritually or all of the above? Whew, that's a tough question. I, I don't have a good answer to that, but I'll tell you the one that's uh, preoccupying me most at the moment. It was the realization of confirmation bias. That the more I look around, you know, I just, just I listen now as a pattern, as a person that just studies patterns and how they fit in terms of this brain, one, two, four, twelve capacity. And I see that priming is everything. That if we introduce to somebody and they say something like, you were so generous with what you're saying to me, your poor listeners, they'll probably think that, you know, that I really am and, you know, 100th uh, as, 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 as impactful as you say. Your priming is everything. And there's a confirmation bias. And 
when I realized that people can push a conversation, a deal, a sale, a relationship, one way or the other, by confirmation bias, that has blown my mind. And the same way when you look at the politics of the left and right now, there's such confirmation bias. Warfare, Fox versus MSNBC, it's incredible. Mm. So that has been my greatest habit challenge, to challenge my own confirmation bias mm -hmm. and to try and be disciplined about the quality of ideas that matter and to be bold in sticking to them and speaking up for them and to train myself as best as I can to not be seduced by the power of other people's confirmation bias. So that to me is my greatest, I've changed the habit a bit of trying to challenge my own confirmation biases and I'm learning every day about how to be more truthful with myself and learn from other people who challenge their own confirmation biases because I think that's what is really makes an enormous difference and it's usually something we don't think about because it's such mm -hmm. a deep bias we just mm -hmm. do it mm -hmm. yeah those are very 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 wise words and a great thing to yeah have as a paradigm you want to burst through so that's definitely something i'm also working on every day and like you said the trick is to even realize <laughs> that you're operating within a confirmation bias For people who want to learn more about you, about your work, where can they find you? Totalbrain.com, of course. So totalbrain.com, and there's a free trial, totalbrain, www.totalbrain.com forward slash consumer trial. But if you just go into totalbrain.com for a period of time, because mainly this is only available to big corporates at the moment, but um, Louis Gagnon and the team have made it available to individual consumers if they want to trial it. Um, so there's a, a free trial there. I'd, I'd certainly recommend that. And then there's a lot of PR information, like that uh, articles and stuff around these issues. And if people want to just get a snapshot of some of these things, I have a site. This is my website. It's Dr. Evian Gordon's Brain, no apostrophe, um, dot com, Dr. Evian Gordon's Brain dot com, and most of the references, lots of videos. The one that I would recommend is 20 commonly asked questions about the brain that I give brief answers to. So it's the top questions that I've been asked in my goodness, I think I'm getting close now to a thousand talks, webinars, um, stuff wow. that I, I feel <laughs> I don't do it that much anymore. And I don't travel as much anymore. I'm an old dude now, but um, I try to summarize the top 20 questions uh, that I was asked uh, over the years. And, and that I've, sorry, it's also questions I saw asked at other conferences and talks that I went to. Mm gives a simple answer so those videos are on that site as well that's a fantastic resource evian thank you so much i'll be sure to put that in the show notes so anyone who wants to find this has easy access to it and thank you so much for a delightful insightful and inspiring conversation always when i talk to you i come back with so many new things it's like my brain expands just by being in your presence i love it oh, i'm just a conduit a non-influencer as i say but i really appreciate speaking to you and i particularly appreciate the fact that you know you showed a peak performance goal of doing this and it's a great privilege to now having heard you talk about it be actually be a part of it i'm really excited for you and i'm glad to be part of this well thank you it's been a privilege to talk to you evian and i look forward Likewise. to connecting again very soon maybe in san francisco at the battery club yeah, i'm ready anytime <laughs>
Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.